Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 1, Pre-Islamic Arabia. Before I talk about the formation of the early caliphates, I must first set the scene. To do so, I have to talk about pre-Islamic Arabia and then the formation and spread of Islam under Muhammad. In case the title of this episode is somehow unclear, this episode will cover pre-Islamic Arabia, specifically its geography, role in the post-classical era, religious makeup, and society. Arabia can be divided into four parts, the Western Highlands, the vast interior, including many deserts like the Rubel Kali, or Empty Quarter, the lush southwest, or Arabia Felix, which includes monsoon rains and aromatic plants, and the hot and humid lands along the eastern coastline. Most places in Arabia have fairly consistent climates, hot summers, and low rainfall. Most locations receive less than 8 inches of rainfall annually, and a large subset of those receive less than 4 inches of rainfall annually. This creates the popular image of Arabia as a vast expanse of desert, and these deserts limit the locations of settlements, forcing distant cultures to develop somewhat independently. It should be noted that the Arabian landscape also contains oases, volcanoes, mudflats, and many other natural features. Outsiders designated this region as the land of the Arabs, but there are two problems with this judgment. First, Arabs initially did not inhabit the entirety of Arabia. Second, non-Arabs also lived in Arabia. For centuries, Arabia was home to a number of diverse cultures and traditions and bordered great and powerful empires, sometimes even becoming involved in their affairs. We know, for example, that Arab tribes assisted the armies of the Assyrians and Persians. Arabia opened up to the wider world only when circumnavigation of the peninsula became possible in the first millennium BCE. Demand for aromatics such as frankincense and myrrh, produced in South Arabia, forced Arabia to increase its contacts with the wider world. Two states that Arabia was in frequent contact with were the Byzantine and Sassanid empires, rival states that dominated the Near East in the centuries preceding the rise of Islam. The Byzantine Empire, with its capital at Constantinople, started out as the eastern half of the Roman Empire, but during the reign of Justinian I, it was able to gain large amounts of territory that belonged to the now-dead Roman Empire, including Anatolia, the Levant, Egypt, North Africa, the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula, Greece, the Balkans, and Italy. By 600 CE, a few years had passed since the death of Justinian, but despite threats on many fronts, the Byzantines were able to retain most of their territory. The Sassanid Empire, on the other hand, was an Iranian dynasty that rose to power during the 3rd century CE. By 600 CE, the territory the Sassanids controlled reached as far west as modern-day Iraq and as far east as modern-day Pakistan. Its capital, Tesiphon, was located on the Tigris River. Wars between the Sassanids and Byzantines would drag Arabia into the realm of international politics. By the end of the 6th century, both the Byzantines and Sassanids attempted to gain an advantage over their enemy by extending their influence into Arabia, and this was done by supporting local tribes. Roman and Byzantine military expeditions were known to have crisscrossed the peninsula, yet the Romans and Byzantines were never able to establish a full military presence in the region. Arab tribes were employed as federates, or allies, of their armies, which introduced Christianity to the Arabs. Chief among these Arabian tribes were the Ghassanids which formed a buffer kingdom between Byzantine Syria and Arabia in the 6th century CE. Although the Byzantines allied with the Ghassanids, they had uneasy relations, as Ghassanid rulers practiced Monophysite Christianity, which was viewed as heresy by the Byzantines. Similarly, another kingdom, the Lachamids, had an uneasy alliance with the Sassanids. 
Sassanid dominion was established along the eastern and southern coasts by the 6th century, and, like the Byzantines, they could campaign across Arabia if need be. It seems that the Sassanids are trying to control traffic through the Persian Gulf. Also like the Byzantines, the Sassanids had uneasy relationships with Arabian tribes. Sometimes, full confrontations between tribes loyal to the Sassanids and tribes hostile to the Sassanids erupted. The most famous example was at the Battle of Dukar in the early 7th century, in which the plucky warriors of the Bakr ibn Wayul tribe shockingly won against disciplined Sassanid troops. For both the Byzantines and the Sassanids, however, the easiest way to keep Arabians from plundering their lands was simply to pay them. No accurate representation of this time period would be complete without discussing the Byzantine-Sassanid War of 602-628, quite a mouthful, which occurred just before the establishment of the Caliphate and would drag parts of Arabia into war. When Byzantine Emperor Maurice was deposed in November 602, the Sassanid Shah, Khazar II, declared war. The first phase of the war did not go well for the Byzantines, as the Sassanids captured Armenia and Mesopotamia in spring 603, and Narses, a Byzantine commander in the east, still loyal to Maurice, revolted against the new emperor, Phocas. After a year and a half siege, the crucial Byzantine border fortress of Dara fell to Khosrow. Although the Persian momentum was significantly reduced by 605, they were still winning, and the Byzantines started to disapprove Phocas's conduct of the war. In 610, the Byzantine Senate secretly sent a letter to the governor of North Africa, urging him to come at the head of an army to alleviate their situation. Instead, the governor sent his son, Heraclius, who was going to be a game-changer in this conflict. As Heraclius's vessel entered Constantinople, a mob inside the city lynched Phocas and dragged his body through the streets. Although the Byzantines had a new emperor, their situation was not getting any better. Heraclius's rebellion had weakened Byzantine defenses along the frontiers, allowing the Sassanids to cross the Euphrates River and penetrate even deeper into Byzantine territory. The Sassanids captured the northern Syrian cities of Emesa and Antioch, effectively severing Byzantine contacts with the Levant. The Byzantines finally stopped the invaders at Caesarea, but a second counterattack, led by Heraclius himself, was defeated outside of Antioch and forced to retreat. Now that they securely controlled Syria, the Sassanids divided their forces into two armies. The first army, commanded by Shah Varaz, invaded the Levant, while the second army, commanded by Shahin, invaded Anatolia. In 613, as Shah Varaz was nearing the holy city of Jerusalem, tensions between the city's Christian and Jewish populations exploded on Easter, as the Christians, believing that the Jews were Persian collaborators, and perhaps fueled by rumors of Jews collaborating with the Persians in other cities, attacked the Jews, weakening the city's resistance against the Sassanid invaders. Jerusalem soon fell to the Sassanids, which was a devastating loss to the Byzantines, especially because the Persians stole holy relics like the True Cross. Meanwhile, in 615, Shahin besieged Chalcedon, within sight of Constantinople, forcing the Byzantines to sue for peace. Khazra was ready to transform the Byzantines into a client kingdom. So, the war's over, right? It would be logical to think that the Persians won, but two factors would prolong the war. First, the Byzantines could not stand to see the holy city of Jerusalem in Persian hands. The Byzantines had to liberate it. Second, the Turks, who were Byzantine allies, were invading Iran. So the war went on. Despite capturing Chalcedon, Shahin retreated across Anatolia, instead uniting with Shah Varaz and in invading Egypt, which they accomplished by 619. 
The days of free grain in Constantinople were over, and the citizens of Constantinople had to purchase their bread from Thrace, like every other Byzantine citizen. At this point, the Byzantine situation was looking dire, yet by 622, Heraclius was finally able to launch a miraculous counteroffensive. Heraclius scored his first victory in Bithynia and kicked the Sassanids out of Anatolia, but then he had to move to the Balkans to restore Byzantine control. After securing a treaty with the Avars in spring 624, he could return to the problem in the east. Heraclius joined his army outside Syria, and though he pretended to be planning an invasion of Syria, he actually marched up the Euphrates River and then down the Araxes River into Armenia. In retribution for the capture of Jerusalem, Heraclius destroyed the famous Zoroastrian fire temple at Adargushnasp, located at the birthplace of Zoroaster. An eye for an eye, I guess. Entering Persia was still problematic though, as Persian forces were still blocking Heraclius' advance. Knowing that a decisive victory was necessary to end the war, in 626, Khosrow sent Shavaraz towards Chalcedon while keeping Shahin in Mesopotamia for defense. Shavaraz allied with the Avars, and together they conducted an all-or-nothing siege of Constantinople. Heraclius was faced with a dilemma. If he rushed back to Constantinople, he would lose his initiative, but if he stayed where he was, Constantinople could fall. Heraclius decided to split his army into thirds. The first was sent to defend Constantinople, the second was given to his brother Theodore to deal with Shahin, and the third stayed with him to hold Armenia. The siege of Constantinople was a disaster for the Avars and Persians, as their siege engines could not penetrate Constantinople's walls. Even worse for the attackers was news that Theodore had defeated Shahin in a blinding hailstorm, leading Shahin to commit suicide after the battle. This caused the besiegers to give up. The unsuccessful siege of Constantinople would mark the first serious defeat for the Persians in this war. The tide was turning in favor of the Byzantines, especially because Heraclius allied with Turkic tribes and launched a combined offensive. In 627, Heraclius won a decisive victory at Nineveh, which made the route to the Sassanid capital, Ctesiphon, wide open. As 627 transitioned into 628, Heraclius looted palace after palace until he reached Ctesiphon. Although he lacked proper siege equipment, Heraclius destroyed the agricultural region outside the city. Discontent against Khosrow II among the Sassanid court rose, and during the night of February 23rd to 24th, 628, Khosrow was overthrown. Four days later, he was executed, and his son, Kavad II, claimed the throne. Kavad was willing to negotiate with Heraclius, but he died of illness eight months later, being succeeded by his son, Ardashir, in 630, Shavaraz seized power in his own name, but was assassinated 40 days later and succeeded by Khosrow II's daughter Boran, and Boran yielded all of her father's territorial gains. All holy relics stolen by the Persians were returned to the Byzantines. Despite decades of fighting, both sides reverted to their pre-war boundaries. Although the Byzantines faced early setbacks, they eventually came out on top due to the military genius of Heraclius classic historical underdog tale. If this war had any long-lasting effects, it was that both the Byzantines and Sassanids depleted much of their resources, making them much more vulnerable to the future Islamic conquests. Speaking of Islam, let's turn back to the subject of pre-Islamic Arabia. Muslim historians refer to this period as the Jahiliya, or Time of Ignorance, before the introduction of the Quran. The main problem with these historians is that their works were intended to justify the Islamic faith. That being said, 
Enough information is available today to describe this period in adequate detail. At this time, Arabia was a melting pot of religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Manichaeism, and Semitic Paganism, with all of them competing for influence across the peninsula. While the first three I mentioned are well understood and still practiced today, Semitic Paganism is a mystery. It's not as well understood as, say, Greek or Norse mythology, but we can definitely identify some of the deities' names, the most prominent being one that Muslims know all too well, Allah. The nature of Allah in pre-Islamic times is still disputed. Some see Allah as a creator god, while some claim that Allah may not refer to a specific god at all. After all, the name literally means the god, so it could in theory apply to any deity. What we do know is that three daughters of Allah, Manat, Alat, and Aluza, occupied a special place within the Arabian pantheon. These deities' names, as well as many others, are found in the Quran, but mainly in passages that criticize rather than celebrate paganism. Semitic pagans were idolaters, or mushrikun, a practice condemned in the Quran, though it is still uncertain how the pagans conducted idol worship. Semitic paganism was mostly practiced in regions outside of Byzantine and Sassanid influence, mostly Central and Western Arabia, where an independent Bedouin society existed. The Bedouins did not view themselves as one large tribe, but instead a collection of tribes, which were themselves a collection of families, all competing for influence. For a Bedouin, social identity was everything. It revealed his relationships with other families and tribes. If two Bedouins met and told each other what kinship group they were both from, they could determine if they were at war, if they were allies, if any marriage alliances were conducted recently, and so on. Some of these kinship groups managed to climb to the top of their society either by achieving political or economic success. Tribes did not have any governmental systems in the way that the Byzantines and Sassanids did, so law and order were maintained by the kinship groups. Outsiders marveled at the high level of social cohesion these groups achieved. If a Bedouin was wronged, his entire tribe was obliged to seek compensation, sometimes engaging in warfare if necessary. Though all adult males were expected to be able to fight, there were numerous mechanisms, such as intermarriage, gift-giving, and ceremonies and festivals, designed to promote peaceful coexistence. The local community handled day-to-day -day duties, such as the production of subsistence goods and child-rearing, and since each community produced basically the same goods, there was no need for tribes to depend on each other for specialized products. Within the tribes, women usually had entertaining roles, and in inscriptions, they frequently appear as mothers and wives, but these pieces of information alone do not necessarily summarize the status of Bedouin women. Although men were expected to fight, women were known to rally alongside men in times of trouble. Although descent through the male line seemed to be the norm, there were some examples of matrilineal descent. When it came to marriage, newlyweds could join either the husband's or the wife's native clan. Some men practiced monogamy, while others practiced polygyny and polyandry. In addition, some women were known to take so-called mercenary husbands if their current husbands were infertile, so women did occupy a special place within Bedouin society. Perhaps the only commonality between all the Bedouin tribes was that they spoke the same language, Arabic. Arabic was utilized in poetry, which had a special place within Bedouin society, of course, these poems were spoken orally and were first recorded in the 8th century. 
but Muslims felt it necessary to record this material in order to get a better understanding of the Arabic language and thus the Quran. We don't have much physical evidence of pre-Islamic poetry, but from the ones we do have, it seems that love was a common theme. The Hejaz, a region in the west of Arabia, was one such region in which Arabs clung to their Semitic pagan beliefs. Most of the cities in the Hejaz were oasis towns, but there was one important exception, Mecca. Despite being situated in a barren valley surrounded by deserts filled with very little natural resources, Mecca sprung up because it was home to a sacred object, the Black Stone. The worshipping of stones was a common practice in Semitic paganism, so it was possible that the Black Stone was the impetus for the founding of Meccan Shrine. I'm speaking, of course, about the Kaaba. Muslim traditions state that the Kaaba was built by Abraham and his son Ishmael. The Kaaba may have been dedicated to a god named Hubal, but the connection between Hubal and Allah is still poorly understood. The Kaaba was by no means the only religious site, but the Kaaba's religious significance, as well as that of the nearby Zamzam well, attracted pilgrims from all across Arabia, and commercial activity arose in Mecca as a result of these pilgrimages. Travelers visiting Mecca could essentially kill two birds with one stone by conducting trade and visiting the holy sites at the same time. Local tribes profited from pilgrimages by becoming guardians of these holy sites. One such tribe was the Quraysh, and the Quraysh's position gave it an important status among the other Arabian tribes. The Quraysh would prove their status as guardians during a war against the Aksumite Empire, which roughly corresponded to modern-day Ethiopia. By 570 CE, the Aksumite general Abraha conquered the area corresponding to modern-day Yemen and built a magnificent Christian church in Sana'a. Abraha was infuriated by the fact that some pagan Arabs were still visiting the Kaaba and neglected to visit the church in Sana'a, which he viewed as superior. Thus, Abraha set out to destroy the Kaaba. As Abraha's army marched north, the only group capable of stopping the invaders was the Quraysh, but Abraha failed, either due to a Quraysh victory in battle or a measles epidemic that swept his army, or perhaps both. Either way, the honor of the Quraysh rose considerably during the year of the Elephant. 570 CE. In the aftermath of Abraha's defeat, Yemen was captured by the Sassanids. But 570 CE would not be popularly remembered for a failed Aksumite invasion of the Hejaz. No, because in 570 CE, a very special boy was born into the Quraysh tribe. A boy named Muhammad. Muhammad.